0: Good morning, church, here in the uh, sanctuary in the worship center and live stream. Please uh, know that we're praying for you, and I want just a personal word. Thank you for being faithful in your prayers in your financial support and going forward. We are the church. We want to impact our community during these very unsettling and unforeseeable issues. So, So one thing I want to suggest or tell you is that in the next few weeks, we're going to be sending out some initiatives regarding budgets and other adoptive issues that we normally do through a perforated strip or through different meetings as we get together, but because of the COVID 19, it will be an internet experience. So be looking for that. But again, thank you for being so faithful. Really, it's a joy to be the pastor of this church. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue in, in Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, is the battle for the fight for our joy or how to maintain your happiness. And today it's going to be the focus of our happiness. But here are the scripture, this is Psalm 16. I'm going to be dealing with verse 10, but I'll, let me read verses 9 through 11. This is the Psalm of David. He says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also will dwell secure. Verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, this is the word of the Lord. Now, in literature, there is often a door or a curtain or a passageway that leads to a place of hope and joy that gets you from the present context into another place. For example, in a book called A Thousand Nights and One, there's a story, a small story, entitled The Man Who Never Laughed. And it's a story about a man who was hired by a wealthy individual with a large house. And he said, take care of these 12 men who were upstairs in this huge room. And these men mourned all day and wept. And so for 10 years, this young man took care of them. And he buried all 12 of them through the ensuing years. And then he finally buried the owner of the house and after he'd done that, he saw a door uh, that he hadn't seen before, and it was overgrown with vines and mildew and the passage of time. And he, and he pried the door open, and he went through the door, and he found himself on in a beautiful beach. And as he stood there and the beauty of the beach, an eagle came in grabbed him with his talons and took him and dropped him into a magical kingdom where there is a beautiful woman awaiting him who is the queen. And she says, I've been waiting for you. You are now my king. And so they lived together in in joy and harmony for seven years. And she told him several times, you should never, ever go through that door. There's another door. Don't go through that door. And for seven years as the king with his beautiful queen, he enjoyed her immensely, enjoyed being the king of the realm. But then finally, curiosity got the best of him, and he opened the door, and he went through it, and he found himself tumbling back into the beach. And once again, an eagle came in after two months. He kept thinking, I can get back, and get back. The eagle picked him up and dropped him basically back into the passage where he went back into the house, and he sat in that upper room the rest of his days, weeping profusely for what he had left. So there was a passage door that got you there, but then it took you back out. There's a short story called *The Secret Garden*, written in the 1800s, about a young woman whose parents died of cholera in India. And she goes to the home of her uncle, who is a very negative, dour man, who has a son who has some physical issues. And she is uh, really a spoiled child. But as she lives and experiences this, she finds a key and planted it under a tree. And then she finds a door overgrown again with weeds, she opens the door and goes inside and it's a secret garden. And as she's in that secret garden working, her character develops and she experiences emotional healing and her first cousin, physical healing. It's a beautiful story. It's a movie in 1993 called The Secret Garden. My favorite door story is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's a little girl named Lucy in World War II England, the story by C.S. Lewis, and she enters into a wardrobe one day and pushes through it and finds herself tumbling into a land called Narnia where eventually she would experience the reign of the great lion Aslan, who represents Christ. So in these passageways, these curtains, these doorways that go to a better place. In the scripture, there is a curtain that leads to hope. In the Old Testament is called the Holy of Holies. The God's chosen people, the Jews, had this temple that was fulfilled in Christ. There was an outer court for the Jews. Gentiles entered the outer court on pain of death. And next to the outer court was a smaller area called the Holy Place where the priest and the Levites made sacrifices. And then once a year in a room, a small room where the Ark of the Covenant stayed was called the Holy of Holies. And there was this huge, heavy curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. Once a year, the high priest would go inside the curtain and make sacrifice for his own sin and then for the sins of the people of Israel. Once a year, which foresignified signified the coming of Jesus, a curtain that gives us Hope. And so you go to Hebrews, and in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, it says this Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that is opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. The writer of Hebrews says that the temple was fulfilled in the work of Jesus, and the holy of holies has been entered because his flesh was torn, the curtain that allows you to have full fellowship with God. And and so we come to this place in Hebrew, excuse me, Psalms chapter 16. And, and when you read Psalm 16, you come to verse 10, and really I think when verse 10 was read in the assembly of the Jews and even in David's life, he kind of said, I, I, I'm not sure exactly what this means. It's a, it's a predictive prophecy regarding the coming of Jesus. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to the grave, or let your Holy One see Corruption. And you know, David probably said, I'm not sure what that means. I mean, corruption is part of death. How is that fulfilled? I was, Sarah and I were out on a walk with some friends, a long walk, four or five, six years ago. And as we were together and experiencing the hike, uh, we said, let's, let's memorize a verse. So we memorized Psalm 1611, which, you know which says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand pleasures forevermore. And a young woman on the hike said, well, you know, I've, I've memorized Psalm 16. I've enjoyed Psalm 16, but I just don't get verse 10. How does verse 10 fit with the rest of it? You will not abandon me to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. I don't understand that. And really, she's in very good company. I don't think David got it. I don't think the Jews of that day, really got it. Because we have the rest of the story. At the great day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter preached a message about Jesus. 3,000 were converted. The church was birthed in power. And he spent a lot of his time centered on Psalm 16. He says this in verse 23, he says, of Acts 2, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definitive purposes of God. And the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he quotes Psalm 16, word for word. Then he says this, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, who wrote Psalm 16, a thousand years before Jesus, that he And of that, we are all witnesses. So Peter says, let me tell you the rest of the story. This verse is fulfilled in the resurrection of the eternal Christ who rose from the dead. And then in Acts 13, Paul's preaching in modern-day Turkey at a place called Pisidian Antioch. And this is what he says. Acts 13, verse 35. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And this is what Paul says. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul says, I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. This promise is fulfilled in Jesus. Therefore, hear me. David rejoiced, but he saw it dimly. He saw Jesus coming dimly. He saw the sacrificial system fulfilled dimly. He saw the temple being abolished by the flesh of Jesus dimly. We see it with panoramic 3D vision. So while David rejoiced and was glad, our rejoicing should be so much more. Boom. We should be people who rejoice. And so therefore the focus, as I look at this text, the focus of the happy believer is on the person and the work of Jesus who died on the cross and rose victorious to proclaim that everything he said was true. So David says, 1,000 years before Jesus, speaking in a prophetic utterance of Jesus in a prophecy, you will not abandon him to the grave or let him see corruption. Therefore, we should be filled with energy and hope and purpose. So the focus, the focus of the happy believer must be, should be, the reality of Jesus. So you can go through the whole Psalm 16, and it just talks about, we're dependent on the Lord, talks about finding our joy in him, talks about the importance of brothers and sisters. It talks about the end result of disobedience. It talks about thinking well and living well. But the glory of the whole thing is tied to the reality of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, the eternal God who died on the cross for our sins. I, I was working on this, thinking through this, writing on this Thursday morning. And I just thought to myself, how often should we say through the day, the, the the the, the Apostles' Creed, but really the last paragraph that says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, one church for all the ages, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, the communion of the saints. I have missed being with brothers and sisters. I have missed it. The forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. How often through the day in this COVID crisis or in the everydayness of life should I just say I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting? And as I was thinking about that, I got a text about 630 that told me that a dear person in our church, Diane Nelson, had died. And um, I just stopped and said, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. It it fills me with hope. So if I am to live with joy and happiness, I've got to be centered on the fact that there is an eternal God who has no beginning and who has no end and who lived a perfect life, died on the cross for my sins, and rose victorious over death. Therefore, his body did not see corruption. He was not abandoned to Hades. He lives that's what this passage is saying. There is a a piece of music that I love to listen to year-round by a guy from Germany who became a a British citizen, basically, named George Handel. It's called Messiah. In fact, the last two years it's been performed here by the Charleston Symphony and Orchestra. It's it's a story in music about the reality and the greatness of the coming of Jesus and what he accomplished. And and so the the apex of the music, the, the high point, is something called the Hallelujah Chorus. I'm not a musician, but I like to listen to music. And in the Hallelujah Chorus, it's about the greatness of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus. And supposedly in 1742, when it was first performed, when you get to that part of the music, the the King of England, George II, was in attendance. And when they got to that piece of music, supposedly he leapt to his feet. Enjoy. Maybe he was tired of sitting, but he leapt to his feet, and everybody else stood. And since then, that's been the tradition. That when you sing the Hallelujah Chorus, people stand. It should be out of joy and reverence, but people stand. So, so. But in that, they talk about the resurrection of Jesus, and it says this: "And he shall reign forever and ever, King of Kings forever and ever, Lord of Lords forever and ever, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever." And show, show the score. Just so I don't know much about music, but in so that that. Less than sign in music is called a crescendo. And when you are singing music and you see that less than sign, if you're playing an instrument, you really let it fly. It means let it all go, don't hold back, mama. That's what that means. You just go for it. And so if you're playing an instrument, you go for it. And if you're singing, you really sing with gusto and, and, and emotion and praise. And, and, so, and so that is the, a crescendo in the hallelujah chorus. So, 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 so that, that, that's what I'm saying. This is a crescendo moment. The glory of Jesus, prophetically predicted by David, is, is an incredible crescendo moment that we rejoice in and we are incredibly glad. So let me make three points. The first is this. Let's look at verse 10. All scripture is fulfilled in Jesus. All the promises fulfilled in Jesus. The book of Luke, two guys are going down the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion of Jesus. They're heartbroken because they thought Jesus might be the, their leader. And Jesus, the resurrected Christ, comes beside them. And says, what's going on? It says, well... Where have you been? Haven't you heard what's happened in Jerusalem? Jesus, who has been crucified. And he says, we're just overcome with grief. And so it says that Jesus took the scripture and showed them that all the promises are fulfilled in him. In the book of John, Jesus looks at a group of Jews and he says this, "Your, your father, Abraham, Genesis 12 and 16, your father, Abraham, Rejoice to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. He says, what does that mean? Jesus says, I- I'm before Abraham. I'm eternal God. I am the I am. He says, destroy this temple, Temple of Solomon. I'll raise it up in three days. They say, you got to be kidding me because he fulfilled the sacrificial system. All the promises end in Jesus. That's why Hebrews chapter 10 talks about that very issue. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1, listen, says, for, the, for since the law had, was but a shadow, it was the shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. He, he, he says, the, the, the law was a shadow for a signified pointing to Jesus. The sacrificial system fulfilled in Jesus. The righteous standards of the law, fulfilled in the one of perfect obedience. It's just amazing. This is great stuff. And then he says this, chapter 10, verse 11. Every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, Waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What a statement. Sacrifice sat down. It's finished. And by a single offering, he has made perfect those who are in the process are being made holy. Our position is complete in Jesus. So, so it's, it's 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 glorious. There is a tradition, it's not in the Bible, but if you study intertestamental history, there's a tradition that the high priest when he went to the Holy of Holies would have a scarlet cord tied around his ankle, a rope, so that if he is presenting an, an offering for the sin of himself and his people, the Jews, that if that was not accepted and he died, God took him down. They could pull him out of the Holy of Holies and bury him. And That never happened. And I thought, you read that and you think, thanks be to God that by a single sacrifice for sin we are fully accepted. Thanks be to God that on the cross when Jesus cried out, it is finished. That heavy curtain, that tall, heavy curtain was torn from top to bottom, thus signifying open fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't need to worry about a scarlet cord around my ankle. I am complete in Christ. That is the good news. I I thought about the old hymn that says, I I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. So the first point is that everything is fulfilled in Christ. The second is this, it will never be taken away. It says in verse 16, Chapter 16, verse 11, filled with pleasures forevermore, forevermore, never taken away. It's complete. I can grieve his love, but I can never forfeit his love. I can quench the Spirit, but I can never lose the power of the Holy Spirit. A couple years ago, I was meeting with one of the young people in our church who had just graduated from Clemson University. This time of the year, we're normally saying, hey, five weeks to the first, first football game. And now we're just saying, I hope we have football. But we were talking, and he said, you know, I've had a, I've had a great experience at Clemson. He said, "I he said, part of the great experience is that my freshman year in our football team, we went to the playoffs. The second year, we won the national championship. The third year, we went back. And my senior year, we won again. He said, it's unbelievable. I said, it is. I said, but let me, let me just say this to you. As a sports Aficionado, who's a keen observer of athletics, I said, enjoy it because it will not last. It just won't last. Ebb and flow, up and down. I said, in fact, if you study ancient history, I'm gonna we'll go back to the year 2009, a long time ago. 2009 and 2013, there were five years in a row where your team lost to the Gamecocks. I said these things. Don't last. And I've thought about that several times. Maybe that should be the theme of our lives. Enjoy it because it will not last. Health, prosperity. I, I was with my family in California, my son and his wife, and their three kids, five, almost five, three and one and a half. Just a great time. We're sitting at the table one night, and I was looking at these three beautiful grandkids, my wife and my son and his wife. It's just so good. And I said, guys, I just had a thought. I said, somebody at this table will bury everybody else at this table. Pass the potatoes, you know. And, and they said, well, gee, thanks. I said, well, you yeah, think about it. I said, that, that, that is life. So I, I thought many times I should say, you know, enjoy it because it will not last. And that is okay because glory awaits because endless joy that cannot be described awaits. because everything here is a reflection, dim reflection of the glory of heaven. At his right hand, our pleasures and their pleasures are forevermore. And for that, we are glad. The third point. This this thought should fill our life with passion and purpose. Let me read so chapter sixteen, verse five, passion and purpose says, The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup, you hold my lot. The last part of verse eight. I set the Lord at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Last part of verse 9, my flesh also dwells secure. So I say there is security and passion and purpose and hope in the reality of all that Christ is for us. So during this, during this COVID-19 experience, and everything's upside down and inside out. You think you're making progress and all of a sudden you hear about a spike and you go on and on and on. I, I take great comfort in knowing that Abba Father watches over us. And we can go forward in faith, and we can trust him and believe him. I mentioned a little couplet given by John Newton, who had a very difficult life in many ways. As an older man, John Newton, the former slave trader who was converted to Jesus and became a pastor and wrote Amazing Grace, said this. Everything is necessary that he sins. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. What comfort everything is necessary that he sends nothing can be necessary that he withholds we can trust the father so it fills you with life and purpose and let me tell you a story i saw a movie this week that i strongly recommend it's called midway it was released last year so I like the movie because I thought it was well done, and I've read a couple of books about the Battle of Midway, and it's just historically on the money. But here's the story I want to tell you. Uh, so Pearl Harbor happened in December 1941. Our Pacific Fleet was almost destroyed, and uh, the lead pilot for the Japanese attack was a man named Fuchido, Mitsuo Fuchito. And Lieutenant Ficito as the lead aviator, came over the, the horizon, saw Pearl Harbor, laid out before him without any defense at all. And he made this famous cry, which is a signal that we've caught them unaware. He said, Torah, Torah, Torah. So they swept in terrible destruction, horrible destruction. Thousands were killed. In fact, we we didn't know at that point how crippled we were and how open we were to attack. And so six months later, the United States had to have a blow against Japan because Japan was going down the Asia had conquered, Malaysia, Singapore, looking at Indonesia, Australia was next. And so... They decided that we've got to have a battle, so they went to a place called Midway, and through some incredible circumstances, a much larger Japanese fleet was was decimated. There's a, it's a book called The Five Minutes that Changed the War, and we know after the Battle of Midway that was gloriously won by the United States. From that point forward, Japan was defeated. They couldn't control the, the seas. If we had lost Midway, Australia would have fallen, and the West Coast would have been open to bombardment. Pearl Harbor would have probably fallen. It was an incredible victory. The the, the Japanese lost 3,100 men. We lost 300. They lost four aircraft carriers. We lost one. Uh, Just amazing. But Fuchido was there. He was supposed to be the lead pilot again, but because of emergency appendectomy, he could not fly. But he insisted on staying on the ship to encourage his men, and he was on the bridge of one of the aircraft carriers that was bombed, and it was sinking, and he couldn't decide whether to commit suicide, which many officers did, or to go to safety. And so he was going down the side of the ship, still not determined what he was going to do, and all of a sudden an explosion hit the ship, and he fell 20 feet, and he severely shattered both of his ankles. This man who received an appointment with Hirohito after Pearl Harbor was now a disgruntled pilot who never flew again, but he trained men during the war. As the war progressed, he continued to achieve notoriety. He was at a place called Hiroshima for a Navy conference. And he got a call that night, and they said, we need you back in Tokyo. So he got on a plane and flew to Tokyo early the next morning. Four hours later, the the, the atom bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. He just barely escaped death. After the war, his god had died. Imperial Japan, Hirohito, who was supposed to be a demi-god, the emperor, line of god-like figures, the the, the Bushido Empire that could never be defeated had been defeated. And so he quietly retired to the countryside with his wife and children, and he tried to eke out a living. One year after the war ended, he had a telegraph from Douglas MacArthur and the head of the Allied Occupational Forces asking him to come to Tokyo to give testimony about what could have been abuse of the POWs by the Japanese army. And so he said, well, in the the law of Bushido, if you surrender, you're less than human. So that's why they were ghastly things, horrible things done to our boys by the Japanese. Horrible things. And so he said, but I'm sure the Americans did the same thing. And so he started, he said, I'm gonna do some research. And as he did some research, he was contacted by his chief engineer whom he thought had died at the Battle of Midway, but this chief engineer had been taken as a POW. And he said to the chief engineer, he said, tell me about the horrible way the Americans treated you. And he said, they treated us humanely. In fact, he interviewed 30 people and they all said the same thing. We were treated well by the Americans. In fact, this chief engineer said to him, in fact, I was in bad straits, and a a nurse treated me, quote, as if I were her younger brother, and she nursed me to health. And as I got to know her, I found out that her parents were Christian missionaries in the Philippines, and the month before Midway, her mom and dad had been beheaded by the Imperial Army of Japan in the Philippines, and yet she still cared for me. And he couldn't believe, I, I can't believe that. I can't, that's just not part of my worldview. The Bushido code says you don't treat people like that. If people are less than human, you treat them as less than human. And time after time he heard that, and he heard the story of Jesus, and he heard people talking about what it means to follow Christ, and one day he was walking by a monument. Somebody was handing out a track, and there was a track, just a simple track, written by a... American pilot who was part of Doodle's Raid, who was three and a half years, four years, a prisoner in Japan, war camps, and and he was terribly treated. But during that time, he read the New Testament and came to faith in Jesus, and he said, Jesus told me I'm to pray for my enemies and even to love my enemies. And he he read it and couldn't believe it. And so he got a Bible, and this man read the Bible, and he came to faith in Jesus as his Savior and King. And for the last 27 years of his life, he was an evangelist in Japan for the gospel of Christ in America. And, and I read that, and I thought about that nurse, Peggy Coverall, who, whose parents had been decapitated, who still loved these people and cared for them. And I, I, I thought, what an incredible, incredible story. And I... And then I reflected on our, our Vacation Bible School that our children's department did such a great job, and we're still having BBS in our backyards, but the material is phenomenal. And one of the bylines is that Jesus allows us to, emboldens us to, strengthens us to do hard things. Jesus, day two, gives us hope. And I thought, here... That the the gospel of grace, when you really comprehend and get the the gospel in your heart by the Holy Spirit, it should enable us to do hard things, like this nurse caring for Japanese POWs, knowing that her family had been murdered by them. It's amazing. It gives us hope in the midst of a crisis, in the midst of the upside-down world, upside-down. It gives us hope that there is a God who loves us and who cares for us. If I am to be happy as a follower of the living God, if I am to be happy, I'll be centered on the person and work of Jesus, the glory of the resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that David spoke with prophetic prophecy, predictive prophecy, 1,000 years before Christ when he said this enigmatic phrase that is, he will not allow his holy one to go to Sheol or Hades. He will not allow him to, his body to see corruption. And we thank you that Paul said with great clarity, this cannot be about David because David's body saw corruption. But this is a prophecy about Jesus. Thank you that all the promises end in Jesus. Give us hope and grace to walk with strength as we look to you, Lord. We need you. We pray for your purposes and power. Please come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.